0: Hi, everybody. It's Stefan Molyneux from Freedom in Radio. Welcome, one and all, and the guy to the left of you. It is the 14th of August, 2013. This is the inauguration of the midweek call-in show. Wednesdays, 8 p.m. Eastern Standard Time. Uh, I was, I thought, you know, 8 p.m. Eastern Standard Time. Uh, what is this? 5 p.m. for our West Coast listeners. But uh, I know that most of you, um, what is it, 4.20 in the afternoon, you begin to get fairly mellow uh, at your government jobs. So I think that uh, we can still we can still make it work so um and and the reason i was talking about this with mike and um the reason that i'd like to do this is i kind of missed you guys during the whole week it's a whole week i don't get to chat with these great listeners the greatest listeners in the known universe and i would argue in the unknown universe and uh, i miss you guys seven days is too long between conversations so i hope that we can keep this coming i hope that there's enough interest from listeners to keep this conversation going uh it is an incredibly deep uh, pleasure and honor to to speak with you so with that having been said uh, let's uh let's see who is the very first caller don't suck if you're the first call very important this is the inaugurated wednesday evening midweek call so give me a good question something about my nipples please go ahead
1: hi stefan am i coming out okay yes
0: wonderful Uh, how you doing my friend okay
1: you know, when I always call you up, I always think of so many questions to ask you, but uh, I'll home in on one. Uh, you've recently, you, you've spoken a lot about how, well, you've mentioned this quite a few times. You, you've, uh, you've said that you've left the business world because you didn't like the people in the business world or something. Um, and I was quite curious what, what do you mean by that. So can you explain what you were referring to?
0: Well, I mean, I think that there are incentives within the business world that ran more and more counter to um what I viewed as and I think more than just a view, what what I viewed as moral, uh, as as virtuous. And So, for example, one of the things that's happened that I've talked about is we've got the supercharged stock market, which means that there's a huge amount of people's money that is, against their will, herded into the stock market. And as a result, this changes the business decisions of CEOs, right? So, in the past, uh, a CEO of a business would focus on creating long-term value, and that long-term value would be reflected in the general trend of the stock price, right? So people would say, well, this company has been growing at 5 or 10% a year for five years. There's no reason to believe that's going to change. Uh, the leadership is experienced. The, the market is still fairly immature, so there's lots of room to develop and so on. And so the stock price would go up because there would be an anticipation of dividends and growth and in the value of stock over the long term. Now, that's kind of changed I would argue, uh, over the past 20, 30, maybe 35 years, in that now there's so much money in the stock market that is not managed by people knowledgeable of the stock market, right? So most people have a 401k plan or they've got some sort of retirement saving plans up here in Canada. It's called an RRSP. And you have to give that money to fund managers, to mutual fund managers and so on, or invest it or something like that, or the government takes it from you. So you don't want your money in the stock market. You'd just rather it be in the stock market than taken from you at gunpoint by the government. And so what happens is there's too much money chasing chasing too little opportunity. And so what's happened is instead of growing businesses in terms of long-term value with the hope of affecting stock price as a result of that, what's happened is um, there's so much money to be made in the short run through getting all of this money to attach itself to your stock uh, that that CEOs are fundamentally working the stock market rather than working the long-term growth of their businesses. And I have found uh, that this tends to distort uh, business decision-making. So there's lots of what's called stuffing the pipe, which is where you'd really drive to get a whole bunch of sales this quarter uh, and then say, look, we grew 20% this quarter. And uh, what happens is, of course you get almost no sales the next quarter because you've uh, you've got so many sales this quarter that there's nothing to sell to next quarter. You've, you've worked all your contacts and you've... But but what you do is... And, and so people who would be knowledgeable about the industry would say, oh, well, so there's a lot of sales this quarter, but what have they got next quarter? And they would figure this out. Uh, fund managers, um, mutual fund managers, money market managers, whoever they don't know all of these details. They're just like, oh, the stock price really bumped and they hear all of this stuff and they get all of these presentations from the CEOs and, and analysts get involved and so on. And and suddenly it's like, whoa, this is fantastic. And then they go and invest in that stock and everybody makes a fortune. But then in the next quarter or two, business kind of collapses and then the stock price is sold. But, but people have already made their fortune out of it. And so um, I found that um, this is sort of where I saw things heading, and I had some experience of it where people were just focused on the stock price, not on building long-term value. I think that has a distortionary effect on business ethics uh, as a whole. I think that people end up making uh, promises to clients that can't easily be or or maybe not even possibly be uh, kept uh, simply because if they make the sale, they get to tell the analysts, they get to publish the numbers, the stock price is going to jump. And uh, they're all going to make a fortune. And uh, I think that's really changed. Uh, the business's primary relationship should be, of course, with the long-term growth and the long-term financial benefit to the customer. But because there's so much money to be made out of pump-and-dump stock uh, activity, or you could say manipulation, I think that a lot of business leaders have um, focused on their primary relationship being with the stock market Uh, And um, if they have to basically shortchange the customers to to jump the stock price, I think that more and more of them become tempted to to do that. And uh, that's not a particularly pleasurable place to be. Certainly, if you're involved in the technical side of the business, as I largely was, uh, it becomes very difficult because then you've got a whole bunch of promises that seem almost impossible to fulfill um, uh, because stuff has been promised to customers that you may not have the technical resources to uh, to provide. But the numbers look great until that reality comes out. Does, uh, does that make any yeah, sense? Yeah, that
1: makes sense. So you're basically saying that companies sort of, you know, perform to the madness of the state and what the state has created rather than focusing on what is important, which is, you know, the, cu- the customer, right?
0: Well, I would argue that what is important is kind of relative, right? So what is important has become the stock price. Because, you know, people who invest in the company want the stock price to go up. Now, beforehand, they used to choose CEOs who were wise and and ignored the sort of uh, slings and arrows of outrageous business momentary transitional points and just really worked to get the long term growth of the company. But now, of course, you can shave off your R&D and marketing and pump it all into sales and make a fortune uh, in the short run. But of course, you're killing your competitiveness and your growth in the long run. But there's enough money to be made from the stock market growth, uh, the, the growth and the value of the stocks that you can, like, you'd be crazy not to in a way. So, you know, I mean, the Fed and, and the the forcing of everyone's money into the stock market uh, is is has changed business to the point where... From a, an economic self-interest standpoint, it is actually advantageous to focus on the stock price at the expense of long-term growth. You may not end up with a stable and long-term growing company, but uh, you can make out like a bandit in the short run, enough that it's worth it.
1: Ah, oh, yeah. Interesting. Uh, that's kind of... Well, to be honest, I mean, most people aren't in a position in a company where yeah, they're dealing with public trading, right? So would you say that it's different for a small startup?
0: Well, it depends whether you're involved in going public or not. And um, so it, uh, it depends. And I would argue that lots of people are involved in this. I mean, the, if, this, if, if people are chasing stock price, then the salespeople are going to be pushed to, to close deals. And and they will be pushed to close deals to say, okay, we'll give them a a 50% discount if they buy by the end of the quarter. Okay, so your numbers are up uh, this quarter, but you've stolen from next quarter, and you've stolen more money from next quarter than you're making this quarter. So salespeople get a lot of pressure to to, to close the sales in a time frame that makes the company look appealing to the stock market. So they have that effect. Uh, The marketing people are told to create incentives that are more around short-term uh, growth. The data analysts who are creating the business, the uh, business uh, selling tools to to help sell whatever it is you're selling, the the, the ROI, the cost benefit analysis, and so on, the ROA. Uh, all of these guys are really pushed to make it look as attractive as possible and to give as short term, uh, a return as possible. The technical people are basically told to to shut up when <laughs> when they're in front of the clients. Right? Do not let them talk to the tech person uh, because you will simply get a truth that is going to be kind of unpalatable to what. So I think it does affect a lot of people in the business, and a lot of people feel kind of uncomfortable about it. Um, And, of course, a lot of the employees who may not have stock options or anything like that, uh, they're going to face long hours. They may face job uncertainty or instability in their job, um, and they may be put in situations where they feel that to tell the truth is to harm their careers, and that is not something that you really want to be put in, in, in that position, but because there's so much money in the stock market and a variety of other reasons, but I think that's the biggest one, um, the business has really has really changed from, from what it used to be.
1: Right, right. So, In your opinion, you, you think that to maintain your ethics, you would have a small company and not go public, correct?
0: Oh uh, yeah, I got to tell you, and this is just my opinion, as this all is, and this is not any claim to fact. uh, I would avoid going public like the plague. I mean, if this, if this, if FDR grows to be the media (laughs) empire, uh, the interstellar Romulan slash Klingon media empire that I'm, I'm dreaming of, um, I, I will never go public in a bazillion gazillion years. Uh, I don't care how much money is ever put on the table. I am in no way, shape or form ever interested in uh, tossing myself back onto the storm-toss seas of uh, ADD stock market attention spans. Uh, So, um, yeah, I think uh, get a small company, uh, stay away uh, from the stock market, uh, grow slowly and patiently, uh, bring as much value as you can. I mean, this is you know the philosophy of what I do here right i mean the growth is is slow the growth is steady uh the growth is 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 um manageable uh you know i have an employee um well a coworker basically <laughs> he tells me what to do half the time but um actually could we get it down to half would that <laughs> would that be possible mike but um uh and and um the idea that uh, i would throw this enterprise uh into the stock market is is inconceivable to me it would distort everything and would would um take my focus away but how is it that the show grows hopefully by providing value to, uh, to people uh, in, in ways that philosophy can change their lives. Right? This is what uh, is unique about, I think, this show, in that we, we we talk here about philosophy that can change your life. So, yes, if you're an entrepreneur, uh, I think that the only way to ensure the long-term stability and growth of your company and and to have uh, growth, I mean, you can still have growth with, with going public, of course, but um, I think that it's a pretty dangerous uh, um, pretty dangerous waters to get into. Yeah, interesting. It's kind of
1: Yeah, it is interesting how you kind of connected the two, how going public kind of affects, you know, people on a personal level, you know, more job instability and how that puts stress on them and it kind of just changes the mood of the office, so to speak. Um, Is there any other specific reasons, like maybe you had to hold your tongue next to employees or... That sort of thing. That was kind of the answer I was expecting. I mean, your technical answer was is, is definitely appreciated. But I was kind of expecting you to talk about how you had to bite your tongue next to people that get divorced and all that.
0: Well, what I found was that when stock price became... Really important and and you know when I was an entrepreneur, we went on a, a pretty wild stock ride. What happened was the cohesiveness of the organization split. everybody of course, should be facing the same way and rowing the same way you know and there 's the asshole in the back who 's going up two, three four whatever the hell he says to make sure everyone rows at the same time and he 's important he 's not exactly a, a rower, but he 's important a sort of management right but When managers have the potential to make a fortune from the stock price and the employees don't, there is a complete split in focus and unity in the company. And what happens is satisfying the stock market and gaining value in the stock market is for the benefit of the managers and against the benefits of the employees. And therefore, you have a system that is set up which pits management against the employees. If the management can pump up the numbers, in other words, if they can increase revenue without increasing headcount, then the managers do very well through the stock. But the work cascades down to the employees who may or may not see any particular gains in salary. They may have some options. Who knows? But... um, Uh, When everybody's focusing on building long-term values, then everybody's facing the customer and making sure that the customer is satisfied and the greatest amount of creativity and productivity is poured into the product or service that's being provided. That's wonderful. That is a real teamwork, and everybody's on the same page. Everybody's facing the same way. Everyone has the same objective. When stock price can almost immeasurably enrich management at the expense of employee stability and happiness... Well, I mean, you're just setting yourself up for a situation of um, uh, not just a split, but an oppositional, class-based warfare within an organization, and I think that's enormously tragic.
1: Oh yeah, it's kind of like watching The Office. How everybody stops working immediately as soon as you know the mid-level manager leaves the building. It's it's kind of it's it's not a good place to work in that. I mean, as you said, you kind of want to have the feeling that all of your employers are in the same boat as you and you're the captain and we're all working together to get to the nearest island, that sort of thing. And, yeah, I can definitely see the appeal of how you wouldn't want to kind of split the narrative between two very different types of worker
0: yeah. And, and I, in my experience, I mean, I was paid more than my employees. They didn't mind me pay being paid more than they were being paid, uh, as long as we were all facing the same direction. And I mean, they knew that they had a job because I had co-founded the company. Uh, they knew that I was willing to take on the difficult clients, willing to take on, you know, difficult negotiations with angry clients, willing to be the human shield for them, uh, willing to do the travel they may not have wanted to do to some, you know, crappy town in the middle of nowhere. So they didn't mind me being paid more as long as they saw the value that I was providing to them as employees, right? Uh, Making sure that the specifications for the software products were were detailed and explicit enough that they didn't get confused. Dealing with negotiations, any delays, I would communicate those to the clients. So they were fine. Yeah, he gets paid more, but, you know, that's fine, right? You know, like the, the guy who's the character actor in the Brad Pitt movie doesn't mind Brad Pitt getting paid a hell of a lot more because the movie isn't getting made without Brad Pitt as the lead, right? So he's, he's okay with it because he sees the value that Brad Pitt is bringing to the movie, i.e. abs. I don't know what else he brings, but anyway. Um, but when employees look at managers and they see that the managers are getting wealthy by creating commitments or situations which are going to cost the employees in the long run, then cynicism and job hunts inevitably result. And the moment that employees become cynical about management, um, if if it's not in the public sector and it's not got the IP fortress around it, uh, the company must be radically changed or it will die. Because the moment that employees become cynical about management or the moment the employees believe, and probably rightly so, that managers have the opposite incentives to the employees, which is the creation of short-term illusory value at the expense of long-term productivity for the employees, well, then the company is is doomed, and that is not a uh, a fun place to be.
1: Yeah, yeah, interesting. So maybe, uh, apart from public trading, maybe the solution is to change bonuses for managers
0: uh, to be more long-term, I suppose. Yeah, I mean, there's lots of ways and lots of people have wrestled with the problem. You need to create short-term value to meet your payroll, right? I mean, in in the business world, cash flow is everything. I mean, you could have $10 million worth of sales next quarter, but if you can't make payroll, um, you're toast. I mean, you're almost automatically into into bankruptcy. So you need to generate value in the here and now, but you also need to, um, you know, have sales in the future. You need to develop the product, invest in R&D and all this kind of stuff. Um, I don't have any hugely great insights about how to balance that. But what I do find important is that uh, respecting the knowledge base of the employees is really essential. You know, who knows more about the product than the R&D team? Well, having been a member and, and the leader of an R&D team, I can tell you, nobody. Uh, who knows the customer more than the person who's running the project? Well, nobody. Um, everybody has an idea about how the company should grow and everybody needs to be able to participate in that i mean we'd, we'd, we'd take i mean in my company we 'd take people off site for three days we 'd go whitewater rafting we 'd stay up half the night um, you know, drinking uh, uh, Irish coffees and uh, talking about what we wanted to do with the company because you know the most important thing is to have fun because you know <laughs> i mean you 've got to make some money, but um, there 's no points for having a lot of money and being miserable. And so I think if everybody participates in the long-term growth of the company, uh, if everybody gets to say, well, I think these in, these customers, we should fire them because they're more work than they are worth, then everybody is participating. And I think having conversations about how should people be paid is important. And, you know, do people get bonuses for completing things on time? Um, Jack Welsh, uh, who took over... Um, ge i think i should know this i read three of his books anyway he had this thing where he said um there are um underperforming sectors in the economy and um if we only talk about growth then people will never want to go to those underperforming sectors which means the 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 highest talent is going to the greatest growth because that's where they're going to get the most bonuses so we should grow uh, people's bonuses relative to the market not relative to their numbers the previous year and and that way we can balance out the talents. In the organization, because if the greatest talent is always going to the highest growth areas, by definition, you're just going to get widening gaps between shrinkage and growth. So, um, so there's lots of creative ways that you can do it. And we had lots of interesting and creative ways to deal with, uh, uh, to deal with um, how to be compensated. Uh, and um, I think as long as the employees feel and, and not just a feeling, but they actually are participating in the decisions, um, uh, I think that there's a hierarchy in terms of expertise and competence, but I don't think there's much of a hierarchy in terms of creativity uh, and forward planning. So when I would write the sort of three-year tech roadmap, uh, I would never dream of doing that without sitting down with the R&D team for a weekend or a couple of nights or you know a couple of days uh, and going through everything and getting everyone's feedback and then everyone's on board. But when we hash it out that way, so everyone should plan. And part of what everyone should plan should be compensation compensation mechanisms, uh, which can be complicated. How much do you pay the R&D team versus the sales team? Well, the sales team is pretty easy to incentivize. Sorry if I'm getting too technical. But the sales team, did they sell? Did they not? They get bonuses on that. The R&D team, well, it's kind of tough. Should they get bonuses for uh, completing a project in a timely manner if the project doesn't add one penny to sales? Kind of tough. Well, I would argue that the R&D team is not responsible for increasing sales. They are responsible for meeting the targets. It's the responsibility of the marketing team in conjunction with the sales team to set the product features that they believe are the ones that are going to contribute the most to sales. Uh, So I think the R&D team should be incentivized for completing the project on time or even ahead of time or under budget. But the marketing team should be incentivized by the growth in sales, in particular year over year. The salespeople, of course, should be incentivized for each particular a uh, sale uh, and the QA, QC team, the quality assurance, quality control team, should be incentivized based on the diminishing number of irrelevant bugs or, or user-found bugs. There are always obscure bugs in every piece of software that no one's ever going to find. So there's lots of different ways of, uh, of incentivizing these things, um, but they're all to do with long-term customer satisfaction. Um, You know, the the product support team should be incentivized on the number of support contracts that are retained uh, year over year. There's lots of different ways that you can do it. Uh, But as long as everyone agrees how their contributions in a company are going to be measured in terms of growth and profitability, and they accept the um, metrics that are going to be used to give them their bonuses and salary increases and, and whatever then uh, I think it's, it's known ahead of time, it's agreed ahead of time, can always be adjusted down the road. But I think that that kind of participation and finding ways that people can understand how what they do every day impacts the dollar growth of the company, uh, that to me is, is really key in, in growing things. Yeah,
1: absolutely. I actually saw an interesting documentary, this English documentary, um, and it was pretty much what you've been talking about. It kind of struck onto the same theme. Basically, this... I wish I could remember what it was called, um, I would say, but, um, yeah, I forgot. And it was this plumbing company, and you know how everyone says it's completely taboo to talk about salary in in the workplace and that. Well, he kind of – the CEO reversed this, so he he kind of asked everyone to put their salary on this whiteboard, right? So he put his salary – the managers put their salary – you know uh, the people working at the call center put the salary up, and he asked them to negotiate to ask where can we where can we make up this certain amount of money you know what salary should be given to who and it was a very very interesting social experiment yeah. uh, it, in the end it worked out quite well, but at the start, of course, everybody was freaked out right uh Because it's it's kind of like a big change. That kind of transparency is not common, to say the least.
0: And yeah, I mean, I I think everyone knew how much I made, and um, I didn't I didn't particularly hear any any complaints about it. I mean, I, I, and I, always tell them, I always tell my employees, I'm a resource for you to use. You are my customers. I mean, there are customers external to the company. You are my customers. If I'm not doing a good job for you, if I'm not giving you good advice, if I'm not helping you avoid difficult situations or helping get you out of difficult situations, then I shouldn't be paid more than you, right? So, so use me, you know, in the same way that, you know, if you've got a, you know, a coupon for free pizza, go eat the pizza. I mean, so, um, you know, use me as the Bill Withers song until it goes until you use me up. And I really wanted people to know that I, I didn't hide uh, what, what I was paid. And um, I didn't feel that, um, at least I never got any complaints that said, basically, what you provide is not worth the salary that we're giving up to have you around. And I was always pretty aware of that. But that does get kind of lost. And again, once you start focusing on stock price, you're not focusing on employees and customers. And uh, but it really is quite a black hole uh, if the numbers are jumping around so so wildly.
1: Yeah, I mean, it's a respectful thing to do. I mean, being honest about that, you know, we're all part of the same company, you know, why not be honest about what the payroll is, right? Uh, and basically, at the end of yeah. this documentary, kind of the plumbers, you know, the tradesmen, who everyone thought that, oh, they just want as much money as possible. You know how they are. And at the end they came up with creative solutions. They did research on how to reduce the cost of their materials and where to get them from in plumbing, right? And he kind of, they, they presented this in a very formal manner to the CEO. And he was genuinely impressed about how, how revealing all of this information and starting the negotiation for payroll within the business itself it kind of flipped the switch, and now, and now the people you least expect to be contributing to the company's growth are doing just that.
0: Yeah, everybody's a genius in their own occupation, and everybody – I mean, this has been proven repeatedly, particularly in the public sector, that, you know, so for instance, I can't remember, some, some state in the U.S., uh, they figured out that if they unscrewed a couple of light bulbs from vending machines – they saved like $150,000 a year in electricity costs over the, over the state. You know, and, and did it do any harm? No. <laughs> hey, there's a vending machine. I'm thirsty. I'll get something, right? Uh, everybody's a genius. Now, no manager <clears throat> is ever going to think about that or ever going to find out about that. And so a top-down management doesn't work any better in an organization in the long run than uh, a command-and-control socialist economy. Uh, the, the 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 savings the the creativity the, all of that should bubble up from the bottom and this old style of you know manager and worker and the manager is the brain and the worker is the hands I mean this all nonsense I mean this stuff should all be cast away with uh, you know foot binding and circumcision uh, the the savings the creativity should really come up from below and uh, I certainly know when I was when I was an employee I always had great ideas that I wanted to share, and there was almost never any interest uh, in that. Like, nobody said, sat down and said, oh, well, that's interesting. You know, put together a spreadsheet, let me know, give me a time frame. But um, when I had employees who had great ideas, even if I didn't understand what the hell they were <laughs> for fundamentally, if they made a good case for it, uh, you know, go for it. Then you're responsible for it, of course. You know, if you put your projections out, you're responsible for the, for what, what's going to happen. But I think it's... Um, uh, I think the sort of top-down idea is um, is not uh, is not good. So I agree, uh, get the savings coming up from below. Like in the US, there was all this sequestration uh, disasters, you know, that the budgets were going to be cut and everyone was like, oh, these services are going to be cut and we're going to have to cut 15 labor days every year just to meet budget. And, you know, this was what was said sort of six months before, three months into it. They're like, well, we're only going to cut half the services and it turns out we found some savings. So we're actually going to have to cut only seven person days of work and and I think it basically came down to uh, you, know, we, um, you know we have to turn one garbage can upside down and lock two doors extra at night, and suddenly we can meet our budget. Um, you, you always get these huge amounts of complaints anytime Any oh we 're already at the bone we can 't cut there 's no more fat to gut, and then you know it turns out that they 've taken a chainsaw to uh, you know uh, uh, <laughs> a pile of bloated dead elephants so um, there is huge amounts of creativity and efficiency available to a, an organization, but as a manager, you have to stop talking and start listening and start giving the sort of full human respect for people way down you, uh, uh way down on the food chain. People get paid according to the value that they provide. Uh, and if you can get them to, as I'll say to my employees, they say, I want to raise. They say, well, you're paid according to the value that you provide, just as I am. And if you want to raise, you have to provide more value. You have to learn more new skills. You have to come up with new ideas, um, There's no, you know, you got to play the lottery if you want to win, so to speak, although this is a bit more certain than a lottery. And so encouraging them to say that they were in charge of their own salary and compensation, but they needed to provide more value. I said, just as I do need to provide more value if I want to raise. Uh, And getting people to understand that uh, unleashes a lot of creativity in the organization. And, um, you know, the people at the bottom, the people who are working there, I mean, I've walked around on factory floors and talked to people at various companies I was involved in, You know, if you sit them down over a coffee, I mean, they have some great ideas. They know everything there is to know about what to improve in the organization, a million times more than the, you know, the Olympian gods, CEOs and CFOs and CEOs and (laughs) all that, sorry, CTOs and all that, CMOs. They know a huge amount more about how to fix the operation. It's just that usually the management doesn't want to get involved and doesn't want to make those changes. Um, So... Yeah, I, I agree with you. I mean, the the, the the real growth of a company comes from the bottom up in many cases.
1: Yeah, absolutely. I mean, if you got employees, I mean, you've already got a natural resource. You've got other people's brains, so why not put it to use, right? <laughs> Instead of just using their hands and whatnot.
0: Yeah, but of course, a lot of a lot of what a lot of what comes up from the bottom, though, is personnel conflicts that a lot of managers don't like you know, you go talk to five guys on the line and they all say, well, this four, this foreman's great. This foreman's a jerk. And then as a manager, you kind of got to do something about that, right? Uh, but a lot of people don't want to get involved in those interpersonal conflicts. But, you know, rejecting interpersonal conflicts immediately strips your value as a manager down to that of a line employee. I mean, the whole point of being a manager um, is to deal with interpersonal conflicts, with, with conflicts with you and the customers between employees employees and managers and so on if you take that out of the mix you have got no right to call yourself a manager so i think that's important to to do
1: yeah absolutely well thanks for this conversation it's been quite enlightening and i'll have to listen over it again when i get the chance so thank you
0: oh you're very welcome and i really appreciate uh there's great questions and stuff i haven't thought about in <laughs> in quite a while so i'm okay, you bring that stuff up all right
2: Great. Um, my topic uh, is circumcision, particularly the situation where the father is circumcised, but uh, the child is raised peacefully, so not circumcised. And the likely occurrence that it'll eventually, the child will eventually notice the difference and ask why there is a difference. Um, I'm just curious how to approach... Um, I guess you want to be honest with your child, but of course you don't want to... I don't think it would be appropriate to... Share the heinousness of circumcision with him, so i 'm curious how you would approach that kind of situation
0: so uh, a son is noticing that his penis is different from his father 's
2: yeah, I guess so he 's going to ask the question about why, and um,
0: but I mean, first of all i 'm not sure why a son who would have those questions would be seeing his father? Yeah, that is
2: a thought that came to me. Um, I just know that when I was growing up, you know, it wasn't like overt nakedness, but, you know, occasionally I'd see, like my father would be urinating with the door open in the bathroom or something, or we'd go swimming and we'd be changing, and so we'd see each other. Um, So it wasn't like...
0: Yeah, I mean, I'm I'm a big, you know, uh, I'm a big one for um, a little privacy (laughs) in the family, so... Um, I don't think that uh, it's you know I think it, mom and dad genitalia should not be seen by kids uh, the moment that they can walk. I think that's sort of <laughs> that's sort of it for the flashing planet. But um, uh, but but of course it doesn't require that for the child to have questions, right? I mean he's going to be in the locker room and he's going to see intact and he's going to see cut penises and he's going to have questions about that. I would assume that's probably what, seven or eight or nine years old at right, that point? I suppose
2: it's possible to be earlier. I, I mean, I, when I go to the gym, there's lots of very young children there, and they'll likely ask.
0: Right, right, yeah. So, so yeah, so first of all, of course, don't be showing your parental genitalia to your children. That sort of be number one. When, so, so And I would just sort of go by, if the kid sees other penises, and so he sees uncircumcised penises, he has an intact penis... Uh, I would simply talk about differences. He may not even have any questions because, you know, they're used to different hair color, different eye color, different heights, different ages, different races, and so on. So he may not have any particular questions. You know, at some point, it will come up. Um, Of course, my daughter was asking me about the show that I was doing um, when I did the circumcision show, but uh, I did not talk to her about it because it's nothing I really want to... Explain to her at the moment let 's eliminate it uh, with this video, and therefore, when she asks about it i won 't have to, to tell her the unholy stuff that goes on uh, in hospitals uh, every forty seven seconds or so so uh, but when the when the child gets older then i I think that the minimum of relevant facts presented in as neutral a manner as possible is is the way to go. So, um, you know, if the kid's sort of eight or nine years old, I would say, well, in some cultures, there is a tradition wherein the parents um, encourage the doctor or ask the doctor uh, to uh, to remove the, um, the ring of skin around the end of the penis. Um, he says, well, why? Why do they do that? It's like, well, there's, you know, religious reasons they believe uh, that it's some religious commandment uh, although why god is particularly interested in baby penises is sort of beyond me uh, or as you know some people believe that there's some medical reasons which are largely disproven and of course the 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 uh, the practice came into being thousands of years ago when there were no medical double blind experiments to prove any of this so it's just kind of like a tradition and um you know, I I would say it's, it's a tradition that I think is very wrong, and, you know, I'm doing what I can to fight it, uh, but um, a lot of people do believe that this is something that is good or necessary or the right thing to do, and um, uh, I don't agree with it. I think it's very wrong. But um, uh, remember, everyone who's had it, uh, uh, certainly the children who've had it done, uh, they did not they did not make the choice. I mean, they're victims of this, um, this procedure, uh, this, this uh, mutilation. And, um, you know, it's just it's one of the things that is, is sort of wrong in the world that I think people of good conscience and goodwill are really working to oppose with some significant success. As I sort of mentioned in a recent presentation, the prevalence in the U.S. has gone down from like 55 to 33% in a single year. So, yay. But I think, that, does that make any sense? That's sort of how, how I would approach it.
2: Right, right. Um, I guess I'm wondering if uh, when your daughter asks you a question that you're not willing to, or I mean, it's an a answer she's not ready for, do you just simply tell her that, or do you, I don't know, How do you? what do you say to her?
0: I will sometimes tell her that this is a topic that's better when she gets older, but uh, generally I will say, um, you know, it was a very boring show on you know, hospital stuff. Actually, I couldn't say she loves doctors and (laughs) she wants to be a doctor. So I'd have to come up with something. Uh, But uh, generally, I will do the classic, oh, look, something shiny redirect that uh, usually uh, works uh, works all right. But I, I will rarely tell her that this is a topic I'm not going to discuss with her because I don't like the idea that there's a big stratification between adults and children in general, other than, you know, the aforementioned genitalia stuff. But um, uh, I, I really do try to, to speak with her as much as, as possible as, uh, uh, as an equal. And um, so I don't like to pull the you're too young card on her because that really uh, reinforces the, a gap that I, I want to minimize. So generally, I will just do a, a redirect uh, or um, say, oh, it was pretty boring. You know, what would you like to do this afternoon kind of thing? And, and that's, that's generally the way that I'll do it.
2: Okay. Um, just a quick uh, question on the topic of nudity. Um, I guess uh, I'm guess i, I I'm wondering about children feeling a sort of uh, fear about that topic, because I guess if I understand... Sorry, uh, which topic? Pro- do
0: you mean circumcision oh, or nudity?
2: Uh, nudity, because I guess uh, I see a lot of children that sort of like, they seem pretty afraid of nudity. I, I think it's very uh, shunned, in, like in their... Household or whatever,
0: or um, it's shocking now, to them. sorry, do you mean their nudity or the nudity of other children?
2: Perhaps Adults. both. I mean, Three. I guess. Uh, I just. Uh, I guess I'm worried about a child um, seeing it as like a, a scary topic, or seeing someone nude being like traumat- trauma traumatic because it's so... Oh, right. Un, un, unheard of or uh, unexpected um i'm curious if that's i think this
0: uh, sorry to interrupt but I, I i think there's a bit of a false dichotomy in this kind of stuff and the false dichotomy is that you know privacy is repression and to be free with your body to be free with you know then everybody has to run around optionally nude. And I, I think that's a bit, I think that's a complete false dichotomy. I don't mean this is your false dichotomy. I just, I think it's a real false dichotomy. Um, privacy is not the same as, as repression. Shaming is repression. But privacy is not the same as, as shaming, right? So, so if I say I'm going to go to the washroom and I go in and I close the door and I, you know, do my business and then I come out, and wash my hands, I haven't shamed anyone. I've just said that, that going to the washroom is, is private. Now, if my daughter goes to the washroom and I say, you know, that's filthy, disgusting crap in your bowels. You know, I can't believe that you ate that much. That's horrible. Yeah, I, I can't even imagine what I would say. But if I'm shaming her about her bathroom activities or, you know, I can't believe you, whatever, right? I mean, then that would be shaming. And that, I think, is, is a cause of... Um, of repression, of, of of problems with body image and so on. But if I say, um, could you just stand outside, I'm going to change into my bathing suit. I, I mean, that's not shaming anyone. That's just saying I'm going to have a little privacy while I do my changing. And so there was this kind of thing in the 70s. Oh, God. I mean, I'm, <laughs> you know, oh, you know, nudity, uh, you know, don't ever, you know, and, and that's I think that's not right, I think that uh, privacy um, i mean you don't have sex in front of your kids you know that that's not shaming anyone that's just to me that's basic privacy and um but but not having sex in front of your kids is not the same as shaming them about any sexual thoughts or feelings that they might have so um i don't I don't think that privacy is the same as shaming or humiliation. in fact, I think they're kind of opposite, and so um i I don't think that kids who have like I don't think there are any kids who are disturbed or traumatized by the fact that their parents close the door when they go to the washroom. I, in fact, I think quite the opposite would be the case. That if you're if you're seeing Dad lay a deep Indian dinner log uh, first thing in the morning, that that probably is <laughs> going to send you screaming to a Freudian therapist not too far in the distant future. So I think um, uh, I, I think that privacy is is um, is respectful. It's it's saying that there are some things that are not for general consumption, uh, and um, I think privacy is boundaries, I think privacy is great, uh, and I think that uh, letting it all hang out all, all over the place all the time is not, uh, uh, I think is, is actually kind of a negative. Does that make any sense? Yeah, that's pretty good. Um... Pretty good, how could, it be better? how could it be perfect? Everything I say, it must be perfect. <laughs> Sorry, go on. <laughs> Sorry, I, I was yeah raised by a German mother, therefore toilet trained at gunpoint. What can I tell you? <laughs> I eat bratwurst and shit bullets. What can I say? Half German.
2: So sure. I think uh, that pretty much answers my question or gives me something to think about. when I'm listening back.
0: I mean, I, I get that. I mean, there's nothing wrong with nudity. I mean, you know, with it's called your birthday suit. It's you know, we're all born in it and so on. But. Um, you know, I've, I've been to nude beaches, you know, with a big bottle of SPF 20 and a tiny bottle. Well, not a tiny bottle, a smaller bottle of SPF 9 million um, <laughs> for the more sensitive parts. Uh, and actually, one, one time, here's, here's my nudity story. Oh, my God, we'd never do this on a Sunday show. So, one time I was working up north and I was deep, deep in the woods and I had to dig up a whole bunch of piping for, doesn't really matter, so I was going to dig up a whole bunch of piping. And I was uh, in a t-shirt and I was in shorts and uh, I was digging and it was raining and, and, and I was sweaty and it was just hot and unpleasant. And I kept getting sand in my pants and it was actually pretty <laughs> uncomfortable. And so I, you know, I, I just suddenly had this thought. It's like, I'm, I'm not a big nude guy, but I'm, I'm here. I'm in the middle. I know like I'm literally in the, deep Canadian woods, you know, where there's n- not supposed to be anyone around for a long... And then everyone was back in the camp. They were all making dinner. So, you know, what what did it matter? So I thought, okay, I'll just take my, take my pants off, finish my digging, and uh, and then go, go and have some dinner. Well, while getting... Re- anyway, so long and short of it is um, the um, executives from Toronto picked that day to come up and check the progress of the camp. And here they see... Uh, you know, Steph bought deep in the woods um, with with everything hanging out, and uh, they they didn't see much of me. Uh, they basically saw two little ass cheeks heading off into the woods at high speed. Um, but I think that was really one of the odie times where I let um, my inner ape make what was actually quite a sensible decision at the time, uh, but turned out to be um, quite unfortunately ill-timed uh, at this particular uh, moment. So... Um, It was something that I found out caused quite a good deal of hilarity Um, uh, sometime later. At that time, I simply stayed in the woods until they left Um, (laughs) and realized that um, sometimes even though there are rational decisions in the moment, uh, you shouldn't follow them. sort of reminds me of a friend of mine who I played Dungeons & Dragons with when I was younger and, uh, you know, we were all broke, you know, back in the day and um, he said, you know, uh, It makes sense to bring my school stuff back and forth, you know, like my homework and all the papers and all. I mean, I've got these grocery bags that my mom brings back from the grocery store, just double bag it, and I carry my school stuff back and forth to school in in plastic grocery bags. It saves me 20 bucks from having to buy an Adidas bag or a backpack or whatever, which basically does the same thing but isn't free. And I guess that was... (laughs) Kind of a little philosopher even back then. Because I remember saying to him, I said, you are absolutely right and absolutely wrong at the same time. You know, from one standpoint, it makes complete and perfect sense that you get these free bags to take your stuff back and forth from school. On the other hand, if you'd ever like to see a girl naked, I mean, (laughs) I hate to say it, but it's like, it makes sense, but don't do it. Like, it, it, you know, economically, pragmatically, you're saving 20 bucks, but I bet you that 20 bucks is going to cost you more than you'll ever know when it comes to just basically being accepted and not being the guy walking up and down the hallway with all of his stuff in plastic bags. So, you know, things which make sense in the moment and, and which you can provide a great deal of defense for, like working naked in gritty woods or taking your books back and forth uh, to school in grocery bags, just don't do it and in the same way nudity kind of makes sense but don't do it <laughs> don't you know don't shame anyone for nudity but uh don't um don't do it at home anyway that's my my sort of thought are we are we done from callers for today
2: oh we yeah, got one more
0: one more okay go ahead
1: hey rafi go ahead
0: what are you wearing good hi hey, you me. on how you doing uh
3: Stefan, I'm, I'm a new listener. I just uh, signed up uh, three days ago. Uh, I find your point of view fascinating, but there's a big button there, though.
0: Uh, there is a big button there. It's in my chair. Go ahead. Yes, there is a big button, yes. Uh, I find that uh, there's
3: a lot of uselessness in talking about improvements, societal improvement and changing, uh, trying to work without government, for example. That would be one issue that uh, winds me up. Uh, I, I think that uh, the reason why it's useless is because we are not focusing our energy in the right, in the right place. Uh, according to me, from what I found out from personal experience and personal uh, awareness, is that uh, everything that is outside of me is a direct uh, reflection of what I carry inside of me.
0: Uh, Sorry, that, that sounded like an important statement, but I didn't follow it. You said, everything that is outside of me is what?
3: Is a direct reflection of what I carry inside of me. You
0: okay, me? so everything, wait, wait, I just want to make sure, I always want to make sure I don't gloss over important statements at the beginning that I don't understand, because then okay. things don't go well. Okay. Everything that is outside of you is a reflection of what you carry inside of you. That's right. Can you give me an example? Sure.
3: Uh, wars, for example. Uh, that, that's a perfect example to talk about. Uh, the reason why I believe we have wars uh, is because of the duality that I have inside of me. And every day I fight myself.
0: Inside of uh, it, you? Like the reason we yeah. have wars is because of what you have inside of you in particular as an individual, just you? Uh,
3: no, just, just, not just me, as, as a collective.
0: So what, what uh, we all have inside of us.
3: Well, what we all have inside of us are, are dualities. We are in duality with ourselves.
0: So in you're our saying everyone, is, everyone is, is ambivalent about war? Uh,
3: pretty much, yes. Uh, and I have a lot of examples to give uh, according to what we carry, all, all, all the duality that we have inside of us. I'm sure you are uh, knowledgeable enough to know uh, what kind of... I mean, when the mind says something and when the heart says something else, that, 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 that's an example of a uh, duality that we live with every day. Uh, yep. the, ju- the judgment that we have uh, towards ourselves, uh, that's also another duality. I mean I, I mean, I can go on and on about, about the, the examples
0: of what... what now, sorry, I order. don't know if you know or not, but I've been reading uh, the audio book called The Origins of War in child abuse, which I think talks about war as a manifestation of internal conflict and trauma. Um, I don't think any other libertarian shows or really any other shows that I've ever heard of have put as much focus on the ills of the world's resulting from the traumas and contradictions of childhood experiences, so if you find my show unsatisfying with regards to that, then I guess you find everyone else's show even more unsatisfying, because I think we do the most work here on trying to yes. connect big world events to sort of what goes on inside people.
3: Yes, I agree. I agree, Stefan. You, you do do the, the most. That's why I'm excited to, to have found you. Mm-hmm. Uh, but I, I would like to, to bring the topic even more uh, as forward uh, as, as, an, as an important topic to, to, topic to talk about. Because I find trying to find solutions, for example, if, if I, I totally agree with you. We do not need government anymore. Maybe we used to one long time ago, just like we did religion, probably. That could be arguable. Uh, but at the same time, uh, I don't since the recent past. I don't find really uh, 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 um, a reason to concentrate on why do we need, why do do we not need a government, and what would be. Uh, libertarian uh, world would, would look like, uh, because the focus here should not be put in the in the in the solution, because whether we but we sorry
0: government- let me let me just interrupt you for a sec because I th- I think you may be not understanding why I talk about a stateless society, I, I, while very clearly saying that it's generations away. The one of the main reasons that I talk about what society would look like without a government, is to provoke people's inner conflicts. Because if you conform to, I don't mean you, but if, if someone conforms to a crazy society, they feel saner. But if you point out repeatedly that their society is crazy, then their conformity becomes not a plus, but a negative to them, which creates conflict. So when I put forward an ideal society... It is to help people to understand that the society that we live in is profoundly sick, profoundly immoral. And yet we're all raised in this society. It all seems natural to us. We're all propagandized about this society. But I talk about an ideal society so that people feel less at home in this, this crazy society that we live in where the, the, the only thing we can ever think to do to solve problems is get the government to point guns at people or steal from the unborn or start wars or, or print money or throw people in jail or you name it, right? So I don't write about a stateless society or talk about a stateless society because I think we can get there from here. I talk about it to denormalize the society that we currently live. Have. Does, does that make any sense?
3: Yes, perfectly. I, I understand it. It is a perfect topic opener, and also there's a lot. Of, there are a lot of people who have different consciousness levels that we haven't even arrived yet. That to, to think, to acknowledge the the possibility of having no government. Because I mean that, that question hasn't even crossed their mind. So I understand for those people, it, it was very helpful to open this, this topic. Uh, but one thing you said that I, I that which is my point is you said that society is sick. Actually, the society is not sick. We are sick. Therefore, the society, we create a society that is sick. So my, my point in all this is that it, it's great as a topic opener. but Oh, come on. You're,
0: you're splitting hairs, right? So I'm saying the flock is sick, and you're saying, well, not the flock is sick. The individual sheep are sick. It's like, well, yeah, I get it. But we call a whole group of people a society, and we call a whole group of sheep a flock. So I think we're basically saying, I think you're kind of quibbling there. Uh, if you're saying, well, it's not society mm-hmm. that is sick, but individuals, right? Uh, that's like uh, saying, oh, a group of people have cancer. Well, it's not the group that has cancer, it's the people that have cancer. Well, yeah, okay, I understand. That's the shorthand, right?
3: Uh, I understand what you're saying, Stefan, but uh, if, if we say the society is sick and we talk about it for like, two hours, and we never mention that uh, the sickness is coming from us, each individual, uh, what, what we tend to do is to, to keep on putting our focus and our, our efforts on the society. And that, that is not where the effort has, uh, should go. I mean,
0: we, it's, Wait, wait, it's, no, I, I, look, I'm sorry to, to be annoying and contradict you, but I don't think I've ever put my efforts into something called society. Like, I've never had somebody call into a show and I say, listen, I'm sorry, I can't talk to you as an individual right now because I have to wait for society to call in. Uh, I believe that society has just gone to Best Buy to get its headset uh, and they're just about to call in, so I can't talk to any individuals because I'm waiting for a collective to call in. Uh, all I do is talk to, to individuals in my interviews, in, in, uh, in my conversations with listeners, in, in these kinds of call-in shows. All I'm doing is talking to individuals, so I don't think it's particularly helpful to lecture me about the need to focus on individuals. That's all I do. Yeah.
3: Uh, what would you say, Stefan, if I tell you that the society is not sick, actually? It, it's perfect the way it is. It's actually... Made this way, we have created a society this way. It's to, it's to realize to uh, to raise no, our. No, I would say that
0: you're incorrect. I would say that you're incorrect, and and it's well, very just, easy uh, to show that you're incorrect. Break. Society but, uh-huh. is sick, and the individuals within society is are sick because they proclaim certain virtues and certain values, particularly around non-aggression, negotiation, peace. And then when you point out that the society that we have inherited from the past is entirely centered on and founded on the initiation of violence uh, through status and through taxation, the initiation of verbal abuse through religiosity, then somebody who has values and lives the opposite is sick, for want of a better word, because they are living the opposite of what they proclaim to be the values that everybody ought to live by. And so somebody who wants to sell a diet book, who shows up 400 pounds of fat in the publishing office, obviously is kind of deranged, because they have an ideal called a healthy weight, but their way they're living is the complete opposite. And that is different from our society, because he's only harming his own self. But in our society, what is it, 4% of Americans are currently in jail? 1% every year goes to jail, and I guess about 0.8% get released or something. And so we have these ideals called let's negotiate. What do we say to kids? Don't hit. Use your words. And then what do we do as adults? Don't use your words. Use the state. Or use your words to control the power and violence of the state to get your way. So... That is sick. That is sick to be so disconnected from your values, or to use your values as a cloak for the evils that you're doing. That that is a kind of sickness to me. Uh, and so, even without any reference to philosophy, without any reference to what the ideals should be, like I don't have to be a nutritionist to know that a 400-pound nutritionist is kind of crazy. I don't have to know what the right diet is. I just know that somebody who's trying to sell a diet book who himself is 400 pounds is kind of crazy. And the same thing is true with society. We don't have to know a thing about philosophy. All we have to do is note the oppositional reality of society's actions versus its ideals, its addiction to violence versus its proclamations of peace and voluntarism. Anyway, I'm done with that whole speech. Uh, what's
3: What's your vision of the future for humanity? Would you th- would you say that uh, there's any hope of gaining uh, zero fear or zero uh, domination or all the nasty stuff we see today? Uh, do you think there's any possibility that we will bring all the nasty stuff to zero one day?
0: No, gosh, no possibility there's- whatsoever. I mean, no, but that does, I mean, what does that matter? I mean, it's, if if you invent the polio virus. Cure, right? If you invent the vaccination for the polio virus, invent the polio virus. If you if you discover Alexander Salk, I think was the one who did it, who who found the the, the antidote to small, the small the, the smallpox inoculation or the the polio inoculation, um, the polio vaccine or the smallpox vaccine. What an incredible good you've done for humanity! You saved tens of millions of lives the world over, hundreds of millions of lives probably in the case of smallpox. Now, do you say to that person who's well? Do you believe that in the future we can get disease down to zero? Well, no. Can, can we get violence down to zero? No. Because we know for a fact that people who sustain certain kinds of brain injuries or people who have certain kind of brain diseases or brain cancers or brain disorders will become violent, even if formerly they were perfectly peaceful. I mean, if I get the right kind of iron spike through my forehead, I could become a homicidal maniac tomorrow, tonight, today. And so there's zero possibility of zero violence, but there certainly is statistically certain, not even probability, there is statistical certainty that we can vastly reduce the prevalence of violence uh, in the world. And that is like wouldn't it be great? So, you know, say, okay, let's say we got rid of slavery. Yeah, we got rid of slavery. Are there still going to be a few crazy nut jobs who kidnap people and lock them in their basement? Or, or a few people who uh, lock their kids in their basement? And I think there was some guy in Europe who locked his daughters in his basement and impregnated them repeatedly, and, and just, you know, for 10 or 15 years. Uh, no, no, it was, it was in the States, because it was some black guy who actually went and helps them I mean they a whole bunch of people had called the cops who'd done nothing, of course, but so yeah, there's still that's slavery i mean that's that's horrible slavery that is occurring, but it's still not the same as having a slave trade and having slavery be legal. Uh, it can be reduced to almost zero, but i, I don 't see any way to reduce it to zero. I think that would be um, um an impossible standard uh, and and even if we had perfectly raised children and a perfectly healthy society. Uh, and nobody ever used aggression. Uh, who was sane or healthy? Um, there are still, of course, brain disorders and injuries and cancers and so on that can provoke aggressive behavior. Um, so I think that that's still a possibility. But I mean, it's so unbelievably rare that that it would be inconceivable to us now.
3: Well, how about if I turn the question on you or or or, or on any individual to say that an individual is, is capable of bringing the nasty to to level zero? Is that a possibility? You mean, am am I
0: capable? Yes, I am absolutely capable of bringing violence to zero. I have never initiated the use of physical violence against anyone. I've never hit anyone. Uh, I've never been involved in any kind of fight. Uh, I have uh, never uh, initiated the use of physical violence against other people. So, you know, so far, you know, brain tumors um, (laughs) excluded. I hope to remain at that batting average for the rest of my life. How about uh, the need uh, for domination?
3: Would you see yourself uh,
0: to bring? Well, up I d- but what's, r- what's wrong with the need for domination? I mean, there's nothing wrong with the need for domination. <laughs> no, seriously. <laughs> I mean, I-, I want to dominate uh, my environment. You know, I, I don't want to live in a snowbank. Uh, you know, I want to dominate cancer. Uh, I want to dominate else. I mean, I want people to want to uh, win and dominate uh, things that are harmful or egregious to our life and health. So, I mean, the human instinct for domination, I think, is is fantastic. You know, we just want it to be domination over things that are harmful to us, uh, rather than domination over other human beings. Uh, so, I have no problem with the instinct for domination.
3: I'm, I'm talking I'm about domination over human beings, not, 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 not for cancer. I don't want to dominate
0: like. other human beings. You don't? No. Okay. No, I mean, why would I want to get involved with anyone? You know, like there was this, this comment on the circumcision video where some guy said, Oh, yeah, my girlfriend said she'd never go down or give a blowjob to, to an intact penis you know, okay, so this woman prefers genitally mutilated penises, and naturally, if you get married to uh, have sex with and have a baby with this woman, she is going to want to mutilate, if it's a boy, she's going to want to mutilate that boy's penis. And so when he's saying my girlfriend wouldn't give blowjobs to intact penises, she's basically saying my girlfriend prefers genitally mutilated penises and would be desperate to genitally mutilate her own son's penis. Excuse me if I reject a blowjob from such a monstrous woman, from such an evil woman. And so, no, I don't. Why, I mean, why would I want to get involved in in dominating people? For what? I mean, I get much infinitely greater value out of negotiating with people, out of win-win situations with people. Why would I want to? I, I don't even want to develop the skills involved in dominating other people. I don't want to be intimidating. I don't want to be a bully. I don't want to be verbally abusive. I don't want to be destructive. I don't want to control people. I don't want to even develop those muscles. I don't even want to have those muscles. I want to well, develop the muscles of peace and negotiation and virtue and fun.
3: Maybe we don't have the same view or definition of the word domination. For example, uh, I see domination as you are a very good uh, philosopher and a good uh, radio host. And you have great ideas wouldn't you want to be one of the best or the best in, in your field and i i and at a perfect, at perfectly I, moment, I want
0: to be uh, yeah i mean i want to be the very best i want to be the very best yeah i want to be the very best at what i do but i don't see how that is dominating people i think if i have the better arguments then that should prevail And if 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 somebody develops a a tablet that's 14 feet across and has a resolution of 9 by 12, and my tablet is better, then is that dominating the other person? No. No. I mean, if if my wife chooses to marry me rather than some other guy she was dating, am I dominating him? No. I mean, she's just allowing the exercise of her free choice. I do want to be the best at what I do, of course. I mean, why would you not want to set your standards as high as possible? Because... Being the best at what I do means that I'm providing the greatest service for the world uh, in, in terms of bringing truth. Now, it is true that people who tell lies are going to lose out if philosophy spreads, right? I mean, the, 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 the priests, uh, politicians, uh, other hucksters and, and sophists and, and uh, snake oil salesmen are going to lose out. But that doesn't mean that I'm dominating them. That just means that they're exposed as liars. You know, if, if, if you come up with a great counterfeit detection machine for currency, that's going to harm counterfeiters. You know, Federal Reserve accepted. It's going to harm counterfeiters. Are you dominating them? No, you're just revealing that they're criminals. Uh, it's their choices that have led them to that particular catastrophe. And if people have committed their lives to telling lies to people and exploiting them, by verbally infecting them with an imaginary disease called invisible sin and then charging rent to remove this phantasm for the rest of their lives? Well, if philosophy reveals that as an exploitive and destructive and false relationship, I'm not dominating them. You know, I'm just, I'm just turning the light on. You know, turning the light on is not beating up the darkness. It's just turning the light on. Uh,
3: it's kind of hard to, to talk about uh, th- this issue, it's uh, is like we, we don't even uh, meet at the same level on, on, on the first step. Uh, when I talk about domination, Stefan, first of all, I, I'm not being judgmental because I am in domination all the time. I realize that I am. In oh,
0: you're, whatever, trying to dominate, sorry, you're trying to dominate me in this conversation?
3: Uh, exactly. That, that's a good example. Yes. Oh, so in this conversation, you're too.
0: trying to dominate me. Sorry, just so I understand. And how yes. would you know if yes. you have dominated me?
3: How would I know? Uh, I would, I would feel it. I would feel a the same feeling as a warrior just killed the enemy. I would feel the same feeling, a, a victorious,
0: victorious. Yes, but but what uh, would provoke yeah. that feeling? What what right? You know, like if you okay, you put the knife through the guy's neck, uh, you win, he dies. You know, well, his death would, would cause that feeling. In in this conversation, uh-huh. what events would transpire that would allow you to feel that joy of dominating me?
3: uh one one ideal way of uh, the obvious way would, would be you would tell me i never thought of it this way you have just opened my mind and i would by saying
0: that i would dominate you wait wait but uh, domination is win lose if you tell me something that i've never thought of before that is valuable to me how have i lost
3: uh you well you haven't lost i have won Maybe you have lost also it depends how you take, how you live your experience. But the, the fact is that I personally and I, I believe everybody does, we all have the need of domination in everything we do. The fact that you want to be the best in your field, to me that says that it's not you just said that you want to illuminate people. To illuminate people, you don't have to be the best in, in the field. But the fact that you are trying to best, you would like to be the best. That, that, that's an example of the domination part that humanity is. And and the point I want to make with all this is that we have to uh, become aware of our animal-dominative needs. Uh, This is where each, each individual has to work before talking about changing society. If we are not even aware of the basic animal needs that we carry each and every day in our life, we will never create what we envision for the future okay for, so for the
0: okay so this is all very abstract but what is your what is your practical plan for bringing this about and we all, they say well we all have to be aware of our animal natures and our divine. okay if, I, but but how how is that achievable like how, how do you actually know if that's occurring or not and how do you get that to to happen
3: Well, my plan by bringing the subject is is the same as yours having a radio host, is to illuminate people, is to give my perspective, my... No, but you're not illuminating. No,
0: sorry. You're you're not illuminating. All you're doing is asserting. You're just saying people want to dominate. That's not illumination. That's not an argument. That's just an assertion. Well, if... uh,
3: Illumination is not done from me. It's, it's what I say, and the, the illumination is done when, depending the way you take it. If you don't see what I'm saying, it's obviously not, not illumination. If you, maybe you're not there yet. You mean if I, sorry, if I,
0: so I'm illuminated if I already agree with you. If I don't agree with you, given that you can't, don't have any arguments, when you make an assertion, people will either agree with you or they'll disagree with you. Now, if they agree with you, you're not illuminating anything to anyone, because they already agree with you. If they don't agree with you, but you don't have any arguments or evidence, then you're not able to change their mind. So I don't understand how you're going to illuminate people who disagree with you.
3: Well, it's not, it's not exactly a question of agreement. It's a question of vision. Uh, if, you are, if somebody is close to seeing what I'm, what I'm telling you now, uh, by me verbalizing what they, they have been feeling will illuminate this person.
0: Okay, so uh, tell me a little bit about your childhood. I'm sorry? Tell me a little bit about your childhood. What was it like? How were you, um, how were you raised? My
3: childhood, uh, it was a conservative family. Uh, we were Christians, but not, we didn't practice. I actually don't remember most of my childhood. I just have a few vague memories. Does that help in any way?
0: So when you say you don't remember most of your childhood, do you mean sort of the first 18 years or 15 years, or what do you mean?
3: I would say the first uh, first eight years.
0: Oh, the first eight years, okay. Do you know how you were punished if you were punished? Or how I you was were disciplined?
3: Rarely, I was very rarely punished because I was a very nice boy. I listened to my parents and they, don't have, they didn't really... Because my, my bigger brother was, uh, was, uh, was, a, was, a, was a black sheep. So he, he got most of the beating. He actually got all the beating. And I, by seeing that as an example, I was a very nice boy.
0: So when you said that your your, your brother was beaten, what, what do you mean? What is what is that?
3: Physically beaten because he didn't listen. No, I get
0: that it's physically beaten, but physically beaten okay. how?
3: Uh, not nothing, nothing too violent, but uh, there was physical contact.
0: Well, was he was he beaten with a hand or a fist or an implement? Uh, I
3: I did not, I never witnessed. I just heard, and um, I believe it was uh, by hand. Yes.
0: So was he spanked or... I, I, I remember a couple of experiences. Sorry? Was he spanked or punched or what? Uh, no, not punched. I would say spanked, yes. And how often did this occur? I, I have a couple of memories of it. I so do it, it only know happened what. a couple of times?
3: Well, I don't know if it happened a couple of times. But I have two memories of it. Like I said, the first eight years, I'm, very, I'm blank. My memory is blank.
0: And you know that's a sign of trauma, right? Yes, I do. It's not proof of trauma, but, you know, it's a sign of trauma. If you can't remember much about your childhood, uh, trauma um, interferes with the hippocampus and the capacity to retain memory and so on, right?
2: Yes,
3: I I know that, and I I, I did approach my bigger sister and my mom about this, and they never said anything. And and the way they reacted, they they know something that I don't know.
0: What do you mean um, they didn't react? And I'm not asking this to cross-examine you. I mean, I, I genuinely feel sympathetic for this, and I'm sorry that you had to witness this, with your brother? No, I, I assume, is he elder, an older brother? Yes, yeah, he's six years older than me. I'm sorry. That's, I mean, that's uh, scary stuff to hear, for sure. But what, what happened when you talked to your mother and sister about it?
3: Uh, my mom uh, said nothing happened. I, I, I asked her if there was sexual abuse, that, because that, that's the feeling that I get. Uh, she said no, this, nothing happened. I emailed my sister, which I don't have much contact with, and she never answers uh, back. So I suspect uh, something, something is up
0: but why i, I do not why do you um, why do you suspect that there may have been sexual abuse uh
3: i have no answer to that it's just a feeling right i have no because i mean no that concern. is obviously
0: a very destructive aspect of of domination i mean that uh-huh. is the domination and obliteration of a child's sovereign body and mind right
3: yes right but having all said all this i have no i do not feel I, 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 don't, I, don't, I don't feel any trauma in me at the moment. I've well, no, because idea.
0: you're no, the reason you don't feel any trauma is that you're taking this domination thing and putting it on the whole human race. Like, I don't feel traumatic for not being 12 feet tall because well, the average height is, I'm actually above the average. I'm some five, 11 and a half or whatever, above the average height. But if you take this domination paradigm and say, this is human nature then nothing untoward happened to you. Like if I say I'm traumatized because my mother didn't feed me with eight breasts like a, a, a sow did, then people would say, well, no, human beings don't have eight breasts, so you weren't deprived by not having access to eight breasts, right? Because human beings have two, right? Oh, women have two, men and women, two, women have two useful ones. We're all taps and no plumbing. But, but if I normalize that which is abnormal, then I feel less trauma, which means that I can't actually deal with things. So if you say, like if you grew up in an environment of domination and you say, well, it's human nature, everybody does it, then what happened to you is going to feel less traumatic because you are taking your experience and universalizing them unfairly and unjustly and incorrectly, I would say, in order to avoid the trauma of having been dealt with in a dominating manner that is not innate to our species and certainly not part of what is generally called human nature, which has nothing, no content to it other than adaptability.
3: Uh, I disagree, uh, obviously. Uh, the, The example that I gave earlier for your need to be the best in the field and you, you 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 responded that uh, you want to illuminate people, but and I I told you back that uh, you don't need to be the best to illuminate people. So that 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 goes out as a. But well, what? Well, sorry, why
0: don't why don't I have to be the best to illuminate people?
3: Uh, you said you want to be the best to illuminate people. I, I told you I, I, you don't need to be the best. You could be an, an amazing person who does it, who does who does your work in, in your field, but you don't have to be the best. What what is it that you want to be the best? That just
0: that factor alone. Well, I, I think, I mean, my, my personal opinion is that if you have an ability that can enormously benefit the human race and you enjoy the exercise of that ability, then why wouldn't you do it? You know, I enjoy philosophy, I love philosophy, and I'm happy that what I love is philosophy and not kitten strangling. Because kitten strangling would be bad for the world, particularly for the world of kittens. Yeah, well, but, I happen to, but I happen to really like philosophy, and I also believe, with good reason, I think, that philosophy is pretty essential to the happiness of the world. So, if I yeah. can do a great service to humanity by provoking people into philosophical thinking, by challenging them, by being annoying, being wrong, being idiotic, or being funny, or, or occasionally shooting an arrow over a house and hitting a bullseye, if I can challenge people into developing philosophical thinking, I mean, the, the opportunities for the world to improve are staggering. They're, 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 incompre- they're as incomprehensible to us now as the 21st century would be to somebody from the 10th century. Uh, the, the, the possibility of the end of war, of the end of, of rape, of the end of torture, of the end of child abuse, of, of the end of spousal abuse, of the end of assault, of the end of theft, of the end of statism, of the end of prisons, all of this is the direct result of critical thinking, philosophical thinking, uh, UPB, voluntarism, the, 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 the promotion of peace and negotiation among human beings, and the stalwart standing in the face of, of evil. I mean, the, 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 there's no greater benefit that could accrue to to the human species than being able to think, being able to think critically, being able to think well, being able to spot manipulative, sociopathic, blood-draining assholes who are constantly hanging like lampreys off the jugular of the species, owning us, controlling us, fencing us, subjugating us, using us, throwing us like toy soldiers into the fires of war and laughing while we burn. The capacity to illuminate evil, to the struggling masses yearning for virtue, and the power of of true and universal ethics—my God! If I were to walk away from something that can be that beneficial to humanity, which I also love to do, would be completely incomprehensible to me. Now, how do I measure how well I'm doing? By how much behavior is changing? I can't measure thinking. I can't. Well, somebody writes to me and says, "Well." I really like your stuff about child abuse. I really agree with it, but I still abuse my children. Well, then they don't agree with it. I I don't care what people think. I care what they do. And I only try to change what people think so I can change what they do, or rather so they can change what they do as the result of better thinking. So when you say you don't have to be the best to illuminate people, well, I guess not. But I would rather be the sun than a flashlight. Right? Because the flashlight ain't going to grow any crops and the sun is going to illuminate the world. And so if I can get more people to think and more people to understand and more people to grow and more people to pursue self-knowledge and more people to enact in the areas of their life that they can change the principles of non-aggression, a respect for property rights, a respect for others, uh, the avoidance of the initiation of force against family members, particularly children, if I, the more the better. I mean, why wouldn't, if you can, if you can get uh, ten, 10 million people to stop hitting their children, that's better than 1 million people stopping hitting their children. If you can get a billion people, that's a whole lot better than 10 million. If you can get 6 billion and 5, or whatever the population of the world is these days, that's better than 1 billion. I mean, the spread of virtue is the more the merrier. There's no upward limit where I say, after this, uh, it's a rounding error, because each new person who is illuminated is a person who is now capable of peace and virtue in the world. So, yeah, I measure myself relative to everybody out there who can comprehend uh, uh, English or whatever languages my work has been translated into and can actually start to live virtue. So, yeah, if I want to be the best at what I do, it has to be quality and quantity. You can get quantity by diminishing quality, just be some... Uh, Can I challenge uh, what you just said,
3: Stefan?
0: Yeah, let me just, uh, sorry, I just knocked my mic here with my passion here. You can always get more quantity by diminishing quality, right? So if I were to say, well, I now am a libertarian minarchist uh, who is a Catholic, I would get more uh, more people to listen, of course, right? If, if, if uh, I didn't put out a consistent message, uh, then I would be able to appeal to people's individual prejudices and get much uh, uh, more hits and, and and more people who want to, to listen and so on. But to continue with quality and quantity requires uh, at least as many resources as I'm, a- I'm able to throw at the problem of spreading philosophy. And that's what I try to do with every show, with you know, bad jokes and, and anecdotes and tensions and all the kind of fun stuff that I throw in to try and challenge people to stay with the conversation. So for me, uh, and this is the last thing I'll say, but for me, yes, uh, uh, to, to be the best is to reach the most people. Uh, you know, to, 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 if you have a vaccine against cancer, you want everyone to get it. You don't want to stop at 10 people. Uh, you want everyone who, who might get it, who might get cancer to, to get it. So uh, go ahead.
3: Thank you. Thank um... you. Let me let me challenge you on that, and I'll give you my perspective, and uh, I'll mm-hmm. I'll I'll let you talk after, with uh, I I don't think we're talking about the same thing exactly. Uh, you're talking about the importance of uh, enlighten- giving information to people. You're talking about uh, the importance of the numbers of the, the most possible, the more the better. I, I agree with you, uh, but that still doesn't does not answer why the need to be the best. Because let's say I'll give an example. Uh, let's say you have 100 million followers or listeners and you become the best and somebody else a year later has a billion, uh, you're not the best anymore, so isn't it better, wouldn't you be happy that a billion more people are following somebody else than you who has the same message or similar message to you, isn't that better for society?
0: Yeah. The best and anymore, I, I would then go and work. I would go and work for that person. Then I would. I do everything within my power to help spread that okay. that conversation. Absolutely. I mean, not, and and when I say no the, best, the best, all I'm talking about is my best. Like, I can't measure myself okay. against the best, okay. like some abstract okay. thing. The Pope has many more. I know. I hate the word followers because I mean, the whole point of philosophy is not to create followers. But. Um, the, the Pope has many more people who listens to him than than people who listen to me, uh, but that doesn 't mean i 'm point oh oh one percent as good as the Pope uh, in terms of uh, spreading uh, philosophy. Uh, I have my best, uh, and I think we have some of um, uh, you know relative quality or relative reach because you can look at other philosophy shows and and other podcasts and see. The kind of reach that they have and see the kind of popularity that they have and see the degree to which they actually change people 's behavior right so you know i 'm reading uh, the, the creature from Jekyll Island at the moment, which is a book about the the growth of the central banks in the world and the bailouts, and it 's really it 's a great book by the way, I hugely recommend it. Is it going to change anyone 's behavior no I mean in, in so wait, well, may people will talk about the Fed, but is it going to change anyone 's the moral status of anyone 's behavior well, not in particular. Uh, it's interesting stuff to know, and I'm, I'm glad to know it. It's, it's a really well-written book and well-researched, and and very um, clear. Uh, but um, I think that to to get people to change is 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 really essential, and and there are some ways in which you can you can measure that. I mean, the the the, the measure the number of downloads, the number of of hits. You know, like last week we did like a quarter of a million video views. That's not counting podcasts or rebroadcasts or people whose shows, uh, other people's shows I've been on have downloaded that stuff. It's not counting torrents or pirate based stuff or anything like that. So, you know, is it with podcasts, 500,000, 600,000, three quarters of a million, in a week, three quarters of a million philosophy touches in the world in, in a week? Uh, I mean, gosh, be, I, think that, I think that's fantastic. Let's be honest, uh,
3: Stefan. Uh, I mean, if, you, if you're trying to, be, to do your best, that's a total difference. Wait a story. second
0: here. When, when you tell me let's be honest, are you, are you sort of trying to tell me that I'm not being honest or are you trying to tell me that you're not being honest uh, in the conversation up to now?
3: Uh, well, to be frank, I'm, uh, I'm, I'm uh, trying to say that you're not being honest. Uh, let, let me explain myself.
0: Uh, do you think that I'm lying?
3: Uh, unconsciously, yes. Yeah. Let me, let me explain my point of view. Uh, because, in the okay,
0: beginning, you, be, you better make this good, because if yeah. you're going to accuse me on my own show of lying, you better have a good case. But go uh, ahead. It's not an
3: accusal, it's a, it's a point of view. Uh, it, because you, at the beginning, you said many times you want to be the best, but now you said you want to be your best. So it, it's very different. Uh, but let, when I say let's be honest, what I, what I mean by that is that admit that a part of you wants to be the best. Is that right? part
0: of you. Uh, sorry, I'm not sure what I understand, wh- what the difference is between my best and the best. I can only do my best. I can't do someone else's best, well, right? Alex, and I certainly can't control whether people download my show or like it, right? The
3: difference is trying to be the best, that's trying to beat everybody else. That's the difference. Trying to do your best is totally different.
0: I'm sorry, i trying to beat everybody else Trying to be I, I don't. I mean, I. I got to tell you, I don't. I don't sort of sit in the morning and say, for my show, I have to beat people. I say I want to be the very best at communicating philosophy today yes. that I can be. But, that in defin- but I don't. I don't think of it in terms of beating people. But that in definition. Honestly, I, I don't.
3: But that in definition, trying to be the best, that i mean, trying to be number one, would be you, you being be-
0: much better than in, anybody else. That that's the competition. That's a domination. No, no, no. Look, I mean, not not if I'm creating the market.
3: Well, it doesn't matter uh, if you're praying or not.
0: No, it uh, does matter. It does want- matter. If, if nobody else is doing what I'm doing, then I'm not taking something away from someone else, right?
3: Well, first of all, I don't see you trying to create the market. Philosophy was created a long time ago, and there's other people who say what you say. I don't know who said it first. It doesn't really matter. Uh, so it doesn't matter if you're praying the market or not. The fact that you want to be the best, and the best means to number one, which means being better than others, which means domination. Don't you see the trend or the, the the logic in that? And again, it's not a so. What message. you so
0: What you're saying is that I'm not doing anything new. Uh,
3: well, you you are definitely improving the message. That that's for sure. And the way you said it, I, for me, I call it uh, brain candy, which I love listening to you. But uh, you are not the only one who, who who brings. Oh,
0: hang on. Sorry. Maybe I understand. Maybe I can understand it this way. So, if somebody is listening to my podcast, mm-hmm. they're not listening to someone else's podcast, or they're not going dancing, or they're not uh, watching TV, and so in a sense, I'm taking things away from other people, is that right?
3: No, I don't know where you got that one from, that's not what I'm saying, all I'm saying is that the fact that you want, a part
0: of you wants to... Who am I assess- beating, who am I beating, just help me understand that, who am I Who am I beating, well, who am I, I dominating, you, if I get a new listener, who am I dominating? Me.
3: Well, you tell me, when you first said that you want to be the best,
0: who, who are you beating, you tell me. Well, you, no, you're telling me I'm dominating people. You got to have some idea who I'm dominating them. No,
3: but you right? told me first you want to be the best. You said that many times. So who? Who, right? who, who, who are you better than others? You tell me. I don't know the people... The
0: no, people. no I, I want to be the best at... at my, I want to do my best at, at communicating philosophy. Well, that's the difference,
3: Stephanie. My best or the best? First, you said the best. That, that's the argument I'm bringing you. I'm bringing on the table. That's I mean, the what the hell does
0: it matter? Not, I, I, there is no... Look, if, if I run my fastest and I end up winning, I can only control how fast I run. I can't control whether I win or not because someone else could run faster. Okay. But who, if, if I get... Let's say, so I, if I get a new listener, Who am I dominating? I, I don't know. I'm asking you because you said it first. No, no, no. You're coming up with the standard, which says I'm dominating people by being the best. So if I get a new listener to my show, who am I dominating? Uh,
3: I, but I don't know. That's the question I have to ask you. Who are you dominating? Why? why
0: do- no, you can't ask me because it's your standard. If you're telling me I'm dominating people, you have to tell me who I'm dominating. If you don't know, then you have to at least withdraw that as a, as, as a standard.
3: But isn't isn't trying isn't one, wanting to be the best? Uh, domination? You're no, you're to, just
0: you're repeating yourself now, and I'm not going to give you too many more opportunities to repeat yourself. If you can't figure out who I'm dominating, then you have to withdraw that as a standard until you can figure it out, right? Because then you're telling me, Steph, you're dominating people, and I say, well, who am I dominating? You say, I have no idea. Well, then you can't put that forward as a standard, right?
3: Stephen, the reason why I'm repeating myself because you're, you're not uh, following up on, on, my, on my point of view. That's no, right, I'm asking why. you
0: a question. You're telling me I'm not... Do- Look, if I'm, winning a, if I'm in a race with 10 people and I win, then you say, who did you beat? Well, I beat the other nine guys. Okay. And I guess in your way of saying things, I dominated and, them. And,
3: right? you, and you were the best, yes.
0: Okay. So who am I beating? Who am I dominating? Who am I winning against when I get a new listener?
3: The competition, whoever was in the field. I don't know. I don't have names to give you.
0: Can you give me a theoretical?
3: Uh, if, first of all if you want to be the best that means you're implying that there are other people who are in the same field
0: uh, I,
3: I do not know all the, all, all the other people I, I have there's some YouTubers that I listen to which I, I love listening
0: to no also. no listen listen I, I, I could be the people. best look I, c- I can pursue juggling porcupines right that can be my thing because I, I don't know got calluses and <laughs> no social life I can pursue juggling porcupines and I can become the very best porcupine juggler that I can be. Right? I, I, I'm, I'm going to keep juggling those porcupines until I can juggle 12 of them on fire while balancing on the back of a baby seal in, in a non harmful way. No animals were harmed in the creation of this metaphor. Now, I am pursuing my very best at juggling porcupines. Who am I dominating?
3: Uh, I don't want to talk about focusers. I, I want to talk about you. Uh,
0: okay, yeah. uh, look, you're either going to get the analogy or you're not, right? Well, uh, let's talk about... You're saying everything is domination and everyone is dominating, and if you pursue your best, you're automatically dominating others. So I'm giving you an example of somebody who wants to juggle porcupines, and then they have to either fit into your category of dominating others, or it's perfectly fine for me to pursue my best without necessarily dominating anyone. Well, it's-
3: it's kind of hard to pursue the conversation because if we're at the, base, the, the first step of the, the, the awareness level that we are all in domination and the fact that we do not agree, for, uh, I'm, I'm baffled that by saying if I want to be the best because I'm going to be better than all the rest and that's not domination, there's no point of pursuing the conversation any further.
0: I certainly agree with that. And I also, um, I should have listened to you at the beginning when you said you only had assertions and not proof because you were very honest with me about that. And look, I really do appreciate the conversation. I actually found it very enjoyable and uh, I really do appreciate the thought that you brought into this um, I obviously will invite you to look upon this as a method of dealing with uh, childhood trauma as a possibility um, and uh, invite you to possibly explore that uh, But uh, because things which seem certain obvious and axiomatic to you which can't withhold uh, withstand a lot of logical scrutiny might be defense mechanisms, just a possibility. But I certainly do appreciate uh, the conversation and I had a good time uh, challenge, being challenged in, in this way. It was really, really quite exhilarating. So thank you so much for that. Thank, thank you, time. Mike, for... Uh, Yes, thank you. And thank you, Mike, for uh, helping us helm the first Sorry for the weird technical problems. Um, No particular reason, (laughs) just, you know, Skype and and hardware and crap like that. But uh, thank you everyone so much. If you like the show, uh, if you find it helpful, uh, let us know. If you like these Wednesday night conversations, I certainly do. And I just, seven days between kissing the brains of the listeners, uh, it's too much puckering and not enough contact. So check out the donation page at fdrurl.com forward slash donate. I hugely appreciate that. Have yourselves a wonderful couple of days. I'll see you all Sunday.